Hi, everyone, and welcome. You are listening to Speeching It Real, a podcast where I interview future and current speech language pathologists. Here, you can learn all about what it's like to get started in the field, see how paths and interests change, and connect with people going through the same things you are. I am your host, Chris Ubieta, and I am currently a second year grad student at CU Boulder. Quick disclaimer, all statements and opinions on this podcast are not reflections of the organizations or schools associated with the speakers. Each person's words reflect their own opinions, including my own. Hey guys, my guest today is Razi Zarchi. He is a co-creator of ASL at Home, which is a family-based curriculum for families of deaf children. This episode is going to be split into two parts. The first part is going to focus on Rozzy's education and his role as an educator up until now. We also chat a lot about the differences between a clinical doctorate and a PhD and why Rozzy chose to pursue both and in different capacities. The second half of this episode will air next Wednesday and that one is December 27th, I believe. And that one's going to focus on Rozzy's relationship with ASL his role as an SLP for deaf and hard of hearing children, and details about the ASL at home curriculum. I'd like to make a quick note. I did not intend for this to be a two-parter, so please excuse the abrupt end and the missing, quote unquote missing, full wrap-up section. Like I said, it wasn't intended, so I kind of just went with it. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, welcome back. I am really excited today because I'm going to be chatting with Razi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Are you, have you done a podcast before? Just once before. Awesome. I'm really glad that you're joining us. You have worked in an area that I am actually going to be doing for my externship. So I'm really excited to hear from you and a lot of little pieces of information and advice. And I think your background and your history leading into where you are now is really exciting. And I think our listeners are going to enjoy it. Well, great. I'm, I'm just so glad to be here. I'm really honored that you asked me to join your podcast. So I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, let's jump into it. Can you tell our listeners who don't know you yet a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Razi Zarchi. I'm a speech language pathologist based in California. I practiced in in the schools mostly with a a short time in private practice for about 12 years, mostly working with deaf and hard of hearing children, but not exclusively, um, and spending a lot of time in preschool, but again, not exclusively. And recently, I actually made the shift entirely into teaching in higher education. So I left my position in the schools to teach full-time at my local university, which is also where I graduated. So I'm teaching mostly in communication sciences and disorders, which is the overarching term that we use for speech pathology and audiology, but also I teach some classes in deaf studies as well. Do you teach in both the undergraduate level and the graduate level? Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you rather do grad students or undergrads? What's the difference for you? I don't have a favorite yet. I'm still pretty new. I started teaching part-time in spring 2022, so I guess this makes it now two full years. And there are just, there are different things to appreciate about both. You know, I started off teaching undergrad classes, mostly the introduction to oral rehabilitation class, which Mm is the only class in the program that directly addresses working with deaf and hard of hearing individuals. I immediately fell in love with teaching that class because really that had been my agenda all along. 
but when I was in the program, I was, um, shall we say, very dissatisfied with that class. I felt like it didn't actually prepare me to work with that population at all. When I graduated from grad school and went to work with deaf and hard of hearing children, I realized that I felt entirely unprepared to work with that population. And so I had in the back of my mind for years that someday I wanted to go back and teach that class in the way that would actually prepare people to work with that population. So when I was given the opportunity, I had to say yes. I really enjoy teaching that class because I feel like a lot of our undergraduates know that they want to become speech pathologists or audiologists. And also a lot of them are not quite sure what they want to do after they graduate. And my goal is to kind of plant the seeds of approaching this work with a deaf positive perspective and seeing the richness that can come with being a person who communicates in a way that's different from sort of the mainstream hearing assumptions. So I, I love being able to work with undergrads who could go in any number of directions and, and sort of plant those seeds early on. It is a last semester senior class, so they're about to graduate when I get them, which means that I'm not catching them quite as early in the program as um you know, might be might be good, but also it's in that semester when they're finding out about grad school programs that, that they've applied to and that sort of thing. And it also means that I get to go and participate in commencement and usher them off toward whatever their, their next great thing is after they graduate. So that's really fun that too, to make yeah, right before they graduate. With grad students, it's just, it's completely different. So I have a much smaller group. My undergrad classes I tend to have a little over a hundred students total between two sections. Yeah. I don't get to know nearly as well as I do with the grad students, which is unfortunate. I, I wish that I could. With my grad students, whether I'm teaching a, a methods class or doing clinical instruction, basically our grad students are taking a couple didactic classes, like regular classroom classes, but most of their time is spent in the clinic actually doing assessment and therapy with real life clients. And so, and that's what I've done with them so far. And it's really enjoyable because I get to see this incredible growth from the beginning of the semester to the end, where they start off the semester going, I don't know where anything is. I don't know what what am, what am I really doing here? Am I here? That sort of sense of imposterism, because like, for example, this semester, I had all first semester grad students. So they had never done this before. And to see the incredible growth from that point at the beginning to the end of the semester where they're walking around like they own the place and they're, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I, I still recognize that I'm new, but I have done a full assessment. I have done a bunch of therapy. I have written a case report from beginning to end. And, you know, I can see that they're really proud of what they've accomplished. And I get to know each of them a lot better as well. So it's just, it's just different, mm -hmm. but I'm finding that I really like working with both. Yeah, that, that sounds really fun. I feel like both of them would be amazing. I think it's really cool to see people who have a passion before they actually know what it's like in the clinic. And then to see clinical growth is so cool. I was I actually just reflected a couple of days ago with my family on the growth that I've had over the last year and a half now that I'm getting ready for my externships. And it is really cool just to see how far I feel and like how comfortable I am now, even though it's going to be totally different once I leave the clinic. I feel like I got the clinic down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I feel like um, I really enjoyed working with first semester grad students because there's still a lot of times in this mindset of 
more of an undergrad mindset. And our undergrad program is a lot of like memorize and regurgitate. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're trying, to, we're, we, we really do try to be intentional about adding a lot more critical thinking and discussion and all of that. But it is a lot of like, I need to remember all the things and show you that I know all the things. Mm -hmm. Whereas grad school is not so much about that. It's, do you know where to look stuff up? And whether or not you've memorized it doesn't really matter. Can you find it? And can you apply it in a therapy room with a client right there? Mm -hmm. And some of my students have commented on that too, that like they, that they, if they say that they studied up for their session or something and I say, okay, but what are you doing when you're studying up for a session? It's not like a test. You have to be able to describe what you're going to do with the client, mm -hmm. not, you know, list things. And so that that change in mindset from from undergrad to grad is is big. It's really big. And I feel like it happens. Ideally, it should happen in those first several weeks of the first semester of clinic. And it, it was just really amazing. This was my first time doing this um, this semester to see that that shift in mindset from students in a classroom to clinicians. I love I love the way that you're talking about that shift. And I really, really like how you're expressing where that mindset needs to change and how. Um, I think that we talk about it in a way, but not in a such a succinct and clear way that you have said it in our clinic. And I really like um, thinking about the approach and the varying ways that it's it shifts. When you're in clinic, do you supervise like deaf and hard of hearing populations in your university clinic or do you supervise other areas too? We we don't have a, like a section of our clinic that is specifically for deaf and hard of hearing clients. We don't have many at all, actually. And so this semester I supervised, I did two clinics, our, what we call our speech one and our language one clinics. Um, and the, the number just reflects the um, the semester that those students are in, in their program. So they were the two, the two clinics that our first semester students are, are doing. So our speech one clinic is typically for either children with speech sound disorders, so articulation or phonology disorders, or adults who have chosen to come in for accent modification. And then our language one clinic is typically young children with developmental language disorders. So mm -hmm. often that looks like two, three, four, five-year-olds with delays in their language, that sort of thing. And so those are the populations that I was supervising this semester. And then as they move up through the clinic, they work with other populations as well who require just more experience. So, that, but that's where, that's where they start. That's great. I really like how it's laid out to a speech and then a language one. E each semester they have a speech clinic and a language clinic typically. Do they have, I guess, cognition then would fall under the language side of things? Yeah, that's our language three clinic. So third semester, their their last semester before they leave on on there. I, I guess we don't call them externships, and I'm not sure why, but they they are because they're off campus. But we call them internships. But yeah, that that their last semester in the clinic is when they do um, neurogenic communication disorders, so aphasia, traumatic brain injury, et, et cetera. Awesome. It's funny you said that about the intern externship thing. On the podcast, I always try to make sure I use them interchangeably because it's it's so weird that different universities use them differently and they're all technically all considered externships, but some programs also don't have clinics. So I guess anything that they would do where they put people out to receive just like our clinic style, so not intern or extern, but they like just cover 
a certain number of hours in maybe a private practice. I don't know what they would call those. So to me, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> we'll just use them interchangeably. Yeah. I really want to know before we keep going, why you chose to become an SLP. Oh, okay. Um, well, I've always been a language person. Starting in middle school, that was when my school district started offering foreign language classes. We had French and Spanish and that was it. And so I chose French because my mom actually majored in French literature when she was in college. And so I, I, she had always used little bits of French with me and my brother. Um, we don't have any sort of French heritage or anything like that, but it, you know, she's, she's fluent in the language. And so she would just use it every so often. And, um, I actually went to a, a French day camp in like fourth and fifth grade, something like that cool. because I was interested in it. And so, um, so when I got to middle school and was able to start taking classes, I chose French, even though people told me, you know, you live in California, you're never going to use it. And I said, yeah, I know, but I, I like it. So I took French all the way from seventh grade up through 12th grade, including AP French. And I, so I decided when I was thinking about what I might want to do when I grew up, I knew that I loved studying the language and, but I wasn't huge on learning about French culture or anything like that. It wasn't about France. It was about the language. And so I thought, well, maybe someday I'll become a high school French teacher because that was the only model I'd ever seen of a person teaching language. And so, and I, I, had a feeling that I wanted to teach all through high school. I would do my homework on the phone with my friends. So, you know, we would just get, we would just get on the phone for hours and work our way through whatever homework we were doing. And I realized after a while that I was kind of unintentionally tutoring my friends through mostly French and math, because if like, if they had any difficulty with it, I would kind of explain my, explain our way through it. Like I would do it and then help them get to the next step. And then the next step. And I, I was always the one who was like, no, I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> what to do. I'm going to ask you leading questions that help you, fi you figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. And I come from a long line of teachers and just being in a teaching kind of role is something that's very highly regarded in my family. And so the idea of teaching was always just a very positive one. And I, and I was finding that I enjoyed it as I sort of realized that I was accidentally tutoring my friends. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, well, someday I'd like to teach. And it has to be something related to language because that's the one thing that gets me like really fired up is language. And so as I was looking at potential majors and applying to college, I discovered linguistics just in the course catalog for the schools that I was looking at. And as I read more into what the classes entailed, I was like, ooh, that looks really interesting. And it's just about language in general, not specifically focused on French or France. Mm -hmm. When I went to college, I went to UCLA, I came in with a major in linguistics and French. And in the linguistics department, you could major in linguistics and any number of things. They had linguistics and computer science, linguistics and anthropology, linguistics and a ton of different languages, et cetera. And so I figured this would be a way to focus on language more broadly, but also capitalize on the fact that I'd spent a bunch of years learning French. <laughs> I learned very quickly that the French department there was just not friendly. Have you ever been in one of those discussion-based classes where every time the teacher asks the class a question to try and get a discussion started, everyone goes silent and tries to avoid eye contact? Yeah. <laughs> Every class in the French department was like that. It was awful. And so I, <laughs> you're going to be a minor now. This is not fun anymore. But I also took a class on linguistic anthropology and fell in love with that because that's really all about how language and culture interact with each other mm -hmm. and how communicate across cultures and 
or when cultures come into contact with each other and all of those sorts of things that I thought was just fascinating. So I changed my major to linguistics and anthropology and French became my minor. I enjoyed it, but had no idea what I wanted to do after I graduated. So I still liked the idea of teaching and I liked the idea of language, but that was all I had. And then my very last class in the linguistic anthropology program was called Diversity and Disruption in Human Communication. So I remember the title. And it was basically, now now that I have different terminology to refer to things in my life, it was basically a class all about communication disorders and other sorts of physical or organic reasons why people may communicate differently from the mainstream from an anthropological point of view. That sounds really cool. it It was really cool. And toward the end of the quarter, I approached my professor and said, hi, do you need a research assistant or anything like that? Because I find your work really fascinating. I'm not sure what I want to do after graduation, but I'd like more exposure to this topic. And so I got a job as her assistant transcribing ethnographic videos. So basically just many, many hours with a camera following around autistic children who are in mainstream general education settings for the purpose of analyzing how they interact with their peers. And so I thought, okay, well... So this whole autism thing is somewhat new to me, but fascinating. I'd like to find out more about this. Maybe this is a population I'd like to work with. So I got a job as a one-on-one aide with an autistic middle schooler um, at a non-public school. So like a special school. Mm -hmm. And as a language person, I just naturally worked with him on his communication all day, every day during the school day because that was really his biggest area of need. And then I would also take him to speech therapy once a week, once or twice a week. I mean, by take him, I mean, you know, across the campus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would walk him there. And then, <laughs> there and then sit and participate. And I realized that the SLP, the speech language pathologist who was working with him, or often an SLPA, speech language pathology assistant, this was their whole job, was just working on communication and not doing all of the other things that a classroom aide does. Um, And the communication part was what I really loved about my job. And the rest of it was sort of like, well, I guess it comes with the territory. Hmm. So I asked, okay, how do I do what you do? Because you're doing what I want to do. I just didn't know there was a name for that. And so they said, well, I'm an SLP and here's what you have to do. You'd have to go back to school. And I I knew that I wanted to go to grad school. I just didn't know for what. Hmm. And so helped a lot. So they said, yeah, you, you know, it's, two years of the master's program, but you may have to do more because your bachelor's isn't in this. And it includes things like unpaid internships and all of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, it would be a big deal, but, but do it if, if you're interested. So I started looking into programs. I found the one at Sacramento state or California state university, Sacramento. And I checked out a couple other programs as well, but that was the one that I just felt that just felt right from the very beginning. And that's where I ended up going. I did have to do two additional years before I was officially admitted into the master's program. I had to basically do the junior and senior years of the speech pathology major. Um, Only one class transferred in, my phonetics class transferred (laughs) in, nothing else did. But I was still grateful for the experience because I didn't have that foundation. And because at least in our program in in grad school, you're working with clients week three of grad school. So you have to have all of that foundational knowledge before you start the grad program. You know, I graduated a little bit older than a lot of the other people in my cohort, but it was fine. You know, I I was grateful for the experience. I think my linguistics background made all of the content 
a lot easier for me to understand when people were struggling with some of those linguistic concepts. I was like, oh yeah, well, I, I had to take a couple classes on this in linguistics. So <laughs> I, I get that. Yeah. Show me. So um, that's how I found my way into speech pathology. Um, I also knew that I, that I was fascinated with American Sign Language, or ASL, from a very young age and wanted to learn it. UCLA didn't have it mm. at all. They had every other language in the world, but not, not ASL. ASL. And so I finally got to start taking classes and learning it once I, once I got to Sac State, as we call it, and started you know socializing within the deaf community and building up my skills and connections there. And so I've been pretty heavily involved in the deaf community here for, oh, 14-ish years probably by now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's had a huge influence on what I do as well. Yeah, I went through the linguistics track also. My undergrad was in linguistics. Really? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, my <laughs> Also, my only class that went over was phonetics. I also think I had to do, I had to do linguistics of bilingualism which transferred kind of. That one was really cool because we learned about the different language areas of the brain and how there's all of these theories about where language is stored and how and at what point are you bilingual, at what point are you like different types of language learning. It was really cool. It was an awesome class. I actually still have my textbook because that was the one that changed my perspective and all of my thoughts on things. But I, like you also, was, because I'm still in grad school, I am one of the older side, on the older side of my class too. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this is something that I also tell my my grad students now when they are still in that mindset of striving for perfection, you know, if they don't get a hundred percent on something, they're hung up on it sometimes because that's the mindset that a lot of our undergrads have to get into grad school because there's such a bottleneck at the grad level. Yeah. Can't accept nearly as many students as apply typically is I tell them, you know, when, when you graduate from this program, no one's going to ask to see your transcripts to make sure you're an SLP. As long as you pass your classes and pass your clinics, they'll still call you SLP. You'll still have those letters. You know, it doesn't matter if you got an A minus on this clinic, like you did great. You showed great growth, you know, but, but sometimes the folks who get into our grad programs are also the folks who are not used to getting for example, A minuses on things. Um, I am one of those students. I'm 100% yeah, I mean, one of those students. <laughs> I would too. And so, you know, it's something that, I mean, I for, I just finished um, a clinical doctorate program, which I'm sure we're going to circle around to it. And my wife kept reminding me, you know, if the paper is not perfect, turn it in anyway, because they'll still call you doctor when you're done. You know, things like that. Yeah. You need your sanity in the end. I think I didn't learn that until... And I, I, people would, I remember my first semester, second year students would say, you're going to eventually, you're going to be like, everything's okay. You're just going to kind of, you're just going to want to be done with it by then. You're going to be fine. You're just not going to be killing yourself over that A. And a part of me agrees with that. But another part of me is like, I still need that perfect. I understand the feeling. I do. I do. I think it's something we have to train ourselves in a way to mm -hmm. accept. Because in the real in in the real world, like when you're doing therapy, you, the success of your therapy will be based on so many factors beyond how well you're doing. I like that a lot. You're not going into therapy and saying like I'm going to get a hundred on my performance today as a therapist because that's unrealistic. And also, 
there's so many factors that contribute to that. Like if I was being graded on my therapy sessions because of the success rate or because of how the child responded or because of how I responded, I probably would be like a B-ish A student <laughs> like, because there's so many things that happen. And some days I might get a D, <laughs> who knows? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've looked back on so many therapy sessions and said, wow, I could have done this better. I could have done this better. I could have done this better. But as long as we're continuing to learn and continuing to improve, I feel like that's, that's the direction we need to go. So that, that's how I try to grade my grad students in clinic as well. Mm. It help, help them see growth rather than trying to strive for some sort of myth of clinical perfection, because there is no such thing. Totally. So I, I wasn't able to be in clinic because I was pretty ill last week and I was observing my co-clinician on Zoom and normally I'd be afraid to go back and watch myself in a video. But as I was watching her, I thought, oh my gosh, we should be, we should be watching ourselves back because I noticed a vocalic, that vocalic R should be targeted. But before we were just targeting all R and all placements but, the, but watching it back like that, I was like, I think the reason for intelligibility is that vocalic R, not all the other R's, because that's where you really hear it. But I wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't sat back and really listened. Like, I do record audio versions to listen, but sitting in the room and kind of seeing those interactions, I really noticed it a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I encourage students, undergrads as well, to reach out to SLPs that they know or who come in as guest speakers or if any of the professors are still practicing or that kind of a thing um, to ask if they can come in and observe sessions. Because first of all, we get super used to being observed in grad school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like used to someone else sitting there watching us do our work, which is a little unnerving at, at the beginning, but you get so used to it. Plus, we love talking about our practice. We love talking about what we're doing. Definitely. And so to have with that curiosity can help keep us interested in what we're doing as well. And so, yeah, at the, at the beginning, the, the idea of watching yourself do therapy or sitting back and watching a recording of yourself or something may be like, oh, I don't want to see myself. <laughs> After a while, you might just kind of get used to it and be like, yep, that's what I look like when I'm doing therapy. And I mean, I don't love pictures of myself, you know, do, doing therapy or something. But there, there have been a, a couple good ones where I'm like, oh, that's that that's what my teacher face looks like. Apparently. <laughs> it's just kind of fun. So yeah, I love that. I mean, it's so funny even using the mirror to do activities because I'm looking at myself and I'm sh and sometimes it's so funny. I know that we produce L behind our teeth. But when I'm sitting there making the sound to teach a kid, I put my, my tongue in front of my teeth. And I and then when I see it in the mirror, I say, oh my goodness, I need to fix that. That is not how we do that. Because <laughs> you're like yeah. over-exaggerating it incorrectly. <laughs> right, right, right. You never know what you're doing. But something else that I've, that I've recommended to my students, uh, my grad students, is if they're trying to elicit a particular sound from their client and they're having a hard time because they it's it's hard because they're having a hard time figuring out what the client is doing inside their mouth, especially for example, the R sound, which is just so hard to teach. Something that I recommend to them, which I've done since I first started studying linguistics and phonetics and all of that, is is whenever you're alone in your car or anywhere else that people can't hear you, or if you don't care about people hearing you, then <laughs> try to make the sound that they're that they make. Try to figure out, like make it the way that they're making it, or move your tongue around until you get something that sounds like what, what they're doing, because that might be what they're doing. 
And then you'll go, oh, the, you know, their whole tongue is bunched way down low in the back of their throat. That's where that sound is coming from or, or whatever it is. But that can actually help you figure out what they're doing and then try to make just one little change. Like what happens if you, if you produce it exactly the same as they are, but you just make your tongue tip go up without thinking R, just tongue tip up, what happens? And then what if I lift the back of the tongue and that's all I do? What does that sound like? You know, because sometimes we're giving directions to our clients to do this, do this, do this with, with your tongue to make the sound. And they're actually doing it, but it doesn't actually sound any better because we've given them a direction to do one specific thing, not this other specific thing that's also required to yeah. get to this. And so anyway, it's, um, there are a lot, yeah, lots of different ways that we can <laughs> figure out what our clients are doing. And it may feel silly at the moment when we're doing it, but it's helpful. So Definitely. I appreciate that. Let's jump into your doctorate. So you recently graduated from Rocky Mountain University with a doctorate in speech language pathology. You already answered my first question, which is that you did a clinical doctorate. Can you just tell our listeners what the difference is between a clinical doctorate and a PhD? I can try. At <laughs> least you're not, uh, to your best ability. <laughs> so the clinical doctorate is the SLPD or Doctor of Speech Language Pathology. Um, it used to be called something like Doctor of Clinical Sciences or ClinSciD, something like that. But so I think some schools called it that and some schools called it the SLPD and they finally just decided to merge them all and now they're all called the SLPD. My understanding for the intention of the SLPD is that it's a doctorate for working professionals who are who are already practicing SLPs who have identified some sort of issue in the field that they would like to look into more or make change in, or who want to kind of move up through through the field into more of a leadership position, that kind of a thing, or they've established a private practice and want to learn more about running a practice, or, or they want to establish one, or they want to move up through, um, you know, a clinical organization like their state association or something like that, um, and to learn more leadership skills in that way, and or want to learn more about evidence-based practice and learning from the current research evidence about how to inform our actual practice with the people we work with, and learning how to do some basic research that could inform that evidence base. So it covers a lot of different kind of angles, but it's sort of a leadership within the field. A PhD is a research doctorate it's specifically focused on research. A lot of PhD programs will actually pay you to attend um, because they are funded through giant grants that the faculty have applied for and gotten to fund student research programs, basically, whereas the SLPD does not have that kind of funding support. You have to oh. pay to go. I didn't, um, I didn't know that. I did know that about research, but I didn't realize it was this, the clinical doctorates didn't have that kind of opportunity as well. No, typically not. Some may have scholarships, um, but, but they don't have, for example, funding from uh, the National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation to do research mm. and or to support PhD students in doing research. Not all PhD programs come with funding. A lot of online PhD programs do not, but 
I would say pro- probably most, I don't actually know any sort of numbers, um, but my impression has been that that most in-person PhD programs tend to be funded. You identify a program that has faculty members who are specifically well-equipped to advise you on the research that you want to do. Hmm. So you don't necessarily, it's not so much that you pick out a program, it's that you pick out an advisor and you go to the program where they are. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the advisor is basically the one who has the ultimate decision about, do I want to advise this student? Because they're making a, let's say four to eight ish year commitment Hmm. to advise all the way up through the end of your dissertation. That's kind of more of the structure of a, of a PhD program. And it's mostly focused on learning how to do lots of different kinds of research. They may have some foundational or not foundational, but like, no, advanced level coursework as well in whatever field you're getting the PhD in. So for example, my wife's PhD is in linguistics. So her PhD program did have advanced linguistics courses as well as as research courses. Mm -hmm. But then the coursework tapers off and you're just working on your dissertation, which is a large research project. My SLPD program was a total of seven semesters. So it would have been, if, if it were, if it were not accelerated and we got summers off, it would have been three and a half years or so. Um, instead it was two and two thirds. And so we had, we had classes on all of, all of those topics that I was talking about. Plus my program required a research-based capstone project mm. that you do in an SLPD is called a capstone. It's not called a dissertation probably because it's smaller than what you do in a PhD program. It was still a lot of work. I believe it. (laughs) So you start talking about your research question early on and the program kind of walks you through how to come up with a research question, how to review the literature, the existing research on that topic and use it to form your study. Our research projects had to be using a single subject or single case design where you find a, a limited number of participants, typically three to 10, and you measure just one or two variables, dependent variables. So what you're looking looking at to see if it changes within each individual over time. So you're measuring them against themselves from beginning to end of your study, mm-hmm. not measuring a whole group of people at the beginning and then a whole group of people at the end or the differences between two groups or something like that. It's there are no groups. It's just each individual compared to themselves over time. So it's a it's a specific format. I believe you can do single case design in a PhD dissertation, but people usually seem to do larger group studies. Mm -hmm. So it was mostly online, mostly asynchronous, but there were synchronous class sessions, usually more like every two weeks Mm -hmm. for an hour when it would be either an open office hours with, with the professors, or they would have a, like a short lecture and then more kind of discussion, that kind of a thing. But most of our coursework was online asynchronous. The program that I was in was called a limited residency program. So it was supposed to be three times throughout the program, we would would fly into Provo, Utah, where the, the university is, for a long weekend of long days in class, basically all, all together. And, mm. you know, our meals together. And the first two were canceled because of COVID and switched online, which is not nearly as fun. (laughs) Uh, 
but they, they really did their best to make it engaging and interesting when you're on Zoom for long hours. Mm-hmm. But we did get to go to our third residency, and that was just amazing to finally meet all the people that I'd been talking with. You know, we had a chat thread going throughout the whole program so we could all with each other and texting and things. And um, But to finally meet them all was just amazing. Well, what advice do you have for people who are interested in going back and pursuing their clinical doctorate? I would say think about what your goals are for when you're done, but also recognize that you may not know. And that's okay. I wasn't really sure. I started in May 2021 when most of the world was still pretty locked down. And I was working from home mostly a lot of the time. And I had a friend who had just done this program or had just started this program and loved it and was interested in research. I was also interested in research, but I specifically wanted to do research that makes it into the hands of the practitioners who are working with kids in schools. Mm -hmm. But like, there might be all this research going on somewhere in some ivory tower, but we're not getting it here in the schools. And so we feel like we always have to make stuff up. We're always talking about evidence-based practice. Where's the evidence? Please share it with us. And so I liked the idea. And it's hard to digest too when you don't have that research brain that they call it. (laughs) Or the experience and knowledge to know how to appraise research and find out if it's any good and all of that. And so I liked the idea of the SLPD because it's for practitioners who want to do research in their clinical practice as well once they graduate potentially, um, or minimally be able to bring that evidence-based practice into their work. And so I really liked that idea. However, while I was there, I fell in love with research And I started to feel like my place was no longer in the therapy room. Like I really wanted to to continue teaching the future generations of SLPs and audiologists and do research to inform clinical practice Mm -hmm. for the people still doing the clinical practice. And so I started looking into, okay, can I get a faculty job and not an adjunct part-time faculty job as as a lecturer, but a tenure track faculty job with an SLPD. And I got mixed answers. Within communication sciences and disorders, the answer tends to be no. Not always, but it tends to be. Because ASHA, our national accrediting body, as part of their accreditation standards for master's SLP programs, they require at least 50% of the master's level coursework to be taught by people with a terminal degree. Hmm. They count terminal degrees as being EDDs and PhDs. That's it. Not the SLPD. Interesting. They don't consider terminal degree because they consider the PhD, I guess, or the EDD to be the highest available in the field and the SLPD not. So that's kind of frustrating. Frustrating because I was not able, able to pursue the career goals that I have with the degree that I was about to finish. And so I immediately started looking at PhD programs because I still feel like I wanted more research experience. I felt like I got a good deal of research experience in the SLPD, more than I think people give these programs credit for. My program, like I said, did require a research-based capstone and some programs don't. So I started looking at PhD programs. I considered, strongly considered an in-person one where there was a a faculty advisor who I admire greatly and had basically told me if I applied, they would accept me and would love to work with me, but it would require a cross-country move. Mm. And I love Sacramento. I love Sacramento State where where I teach. My wife has tenure at Sacramento State. You know, we're settled here. Our families are much closer here than they would be if we moved across the country. 
And ultimately it came down to, I didn't want to leave. And so instead I found an online PhD program, which I started almost immediately after graduation. Yeah. Aren't you doing something in education now? It's a PhD in education and leadership. And it's been great so far. I just finished my first semester and I'm really glad to be doing it. It's really focused on achieving better equity in education through systemic change. Hmm. And everybody's coming in from different backgrounds. There are a bunch of people with clinical backgrounds, not like classroom teacher backgrounds, but it's a good mix. There are a couple other SLPs in my cohort. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's so it's been really fun and interesting so far, and I'm I'm really happy with it. So I, I've had sort of a windy path, but like I say if people are considering the SLPD, think think about what your goals might be when you graduate. Because if your goals are to move up through the field of speech language pathology, and you want to become a leader in the field through private practice or through organizational leadership or anything like that, the SLPD is a great choice. If you want to go into academia, the SLPD may not be enough to achieve your goals in academia. Yeah, it kind of depends on on what you want to do. And if if you want to stay in practice and learn how to appraise research to bring that evidence base into your practice, the SLPD is also good for that. So... Yeah, that's really, really good advice. I never really knew the purpose of going back for a clinical doctorate versus a PhD. So this is this is super helpful, especially for that difference, differentiating factor about being able to educate and being able to be hired on full-time. Yeah, right. And it's the full-time part, the tenure track that um, is most, that an institution is most likely to require a terminal doctorate or term, yeah, terminal degree because- Adjunct positions or part-time positions don't require, I mean, anywhere that I'm aware of, don't require a doctorate at all. In fact, all the, or the vast majority of the clinical instructors at my institution have master's degrees and they're, they're practicing SLPs and they are perfectly qualified to do clinical instruction because that's what they do is clinical work. And so you can absolutely be an adjunct professor, lecturer, clinical instructor um, with a master's degree and do just fine with that. But if you want the full-time tenure track, this is my career kind of direction in academia, then you may want to go for something terminal instead. Love that. Where can our listeners find and follow you? Oh, sure. Um, Well, I've mentioned our website a few times, but it's aslathome.org. I'm on Facebook with just my First and last name, Rosie's Archie. Um, not a lot of other people have my name. On Instagram and I guess it's X now. Um, I'm Rosie the ASL SLP, all one word. So that's where you can find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I don't use it very much. That's just with my name. <laughs> also, uh, we have ASL at home social media profiles. So on Facebook, it's all one word, ASL at home. On Instagram, there's a, a period between the words, so ASL period at, at period home. And then on X, it's the, the same thing, but they're underscores instead of periods. But yeah, I definitely recommend that people follow us there as well or join, join our email list if they want to find out about things we're doing, that sort of thing. Awesome. And all of that information will definitely be linked. I also want to mention before we jump off that you have a really great resource on your website, Rosie's Resources for Communication at Home, that you have like during COVID, you compiled all of these resources that other SLPs had linked and put together and you put it all in one place. I thought that was really cool. So I will also link that 
in our show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's right. I, sometimes I forget that. I, I mean, I also have my own website. It's just rosiesarchie.com. And you're welcome to check that out. It's I, my CV is on there if anyone wants to see the work that I do. And then also links to the SLPD program that I just finished, the PhD program I'm currently in, and other things like that. So yeah, you're also welcome to check that out. Hey guys, that's a wrap on part one of this episode. Please check out part two next week on December 27th, 2023. Thank you all so much for listening to Speeching It Real. Please help us reach a bigger audience by rating us five stars and dropping a review. You can contact me anytime on Instagram at speechingitreal or via email at speechingitreal at gmail.com. You can reach out with any questions, comments, or recommendations.